the Arizona Talks podcast. Today, you'll hear the first interview from a new series in which we bring professional interviewers and top political minds together. In this episode, you'll get to hear Chris Klein, president of the Arizona Broadcasters Association, sit down with Rebecca Rios, the Arizona State Senate Minority Leader, who represents Arizona's 27th Legislative District. Without further ado, here's Chris Klein. Hello from Coffee Coffee in downtown Phoenix. I am Chris Klein, the president of the Arizona Broadcasters Association, and it is my pleasure to be joined by State Senator Rebecca Rios this morning. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Good morning. For those folks who haven't been here, it's this beautiful two-story building. It's got some spiral staircases. It just seems like a, a really neat place. It's a hidden gem, right? The doorway's yeah. this big, and then it opens up into this big cavernous gorgeous place. <laughs> well, you and I have not had the pleasure of meeting one another, so I think this makes the conversation more fun. Where'd you grow up? A native to Arizona, which makes me rare, um, ah. but I grew up between Phoenix and a little mining community, um, Hayden Winkleman. Actually, I grew out, uh, up outside of that mining community in a place called Dudleyville. And so, you know, whenever wow. I'd go somewhere, people say, where are you from? And I'd say, Dudleyville. And they'd say, what is that? And in reality, it's not even an incorporated area, right? We lived in a single wide trailer off Highway 77 okay. in Pinal County. So kind of vacillated between there and Phoenix um, because my father was seeking politics. So we'd come to Phoenix when he'd run oh, no for kidding. office. So and it's in the family blood. It is in the blood. Yes. So I'm trying to do my geography here. Help me figure out where Dudleyville would be. So if you went um, from Phoenix and you went up the US 60 all the way through till it ended, through Apache Junction and then out through Superior, Arizona, and then veer kind of southeast through the big open pit mine there in Ray, Kearney. Yes, Kearney. And then you, you know, it's essentially the highway you're going to take and pass Oracle. Oral Valley, and then you're in Tucson. So it's a beautiful area. It's just I'm kind sure. of in the middle of nowhere, but it, it was mining, you know, mining towns for over a hundred years. And slowly but surely, the mine has kind of shut down. There's not a lot of activity. So honestly, it looks a lot like a ghost town now. Yeah. But we still have my my grandmother's still out there. So no kidding. Still go visit pretty frequently. That's that's a really neat Arizona experience. It's different from I think the experience a lot of people that live in Arizona have because there aren't a lot of natives, it seems like, out there. I mean, I'm one too, but most folks you talk to are California transplants, Illinois transplants. Yeah, once upon a time here in Arizona, 10, 20 years ago, pretty much anybody you would meet, you could identify a family member of theirs and trace it back to one of these small mining communities, whether yeah. it was Superior, Globe Miami, I mean, everybody seemed to be related. And then, of course, with the influx of a lot of new folks from all over the country, um, now it's a little harder to find Phoenix or Arizona natives. I totally understand that. So how did you get from there to Phoenix and growing up to politics? Well, you know, for me, politics was a very natural progression. I grew up in a very political family. Um, I grew up, like I say, in Dudleyville, Arizona. And to give a little history, a little context, um, my parents were very young when they had me. They were teenage parents. So my dad likes to say, we all grew up together. So we, yeah. we went through a lot of adventures together. And one of those adventures, my father, after he um, got his degree, first in his family to do so, um, he did an internship at the Senate in Arizona, and then eventually decided he wanted to run for office. 
So he ran for office, um, began serving in office. So as a child, that meant my weekends were spent at union rallies or knocking on doors, passing out flyers. And so as a kid, I thought that's just yeah. You grew up what around kids it. Did. <laughs> so yeah. That so being in that I think family environment of politics um, really got me ready for. The point at which, after I had graduated from ASU, worked a few years in um, behavioral health, I got my social work degree, and decided. Oh, thank you. That's politics. that's a hard career. I have some friends who are in that space too, and they constantly talk about the need to create those barriers between separating what they hear at work and then being able to go home and not think about that all that all evening. Oh, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I worked in children's behavioral health. And I knew I could never work in child protective services yeah. just because it's such a difficult job. But I tell you what, the point at which you actually have children, it got to a point where I couldn't even watch the news stories. It is, it's gut-wrenching. And so I give a lot of credit for those folks that can work in that setting because we need them, but it's tough. It's tough work. Well, you, know, you, you hear people say a lot that personal experiences help shape your life. So I would guess that that experience has shaped your life as you've gone into public service. Absolutely. So for me growing up, again, growing up with very young parents, yeah. um, it was always instilled in me, even as a child, that you gave back, right? You gave back to your community, you took care of others. My mother eventually became a nurse, got her schooling and became a nurse. My father became a social worker. And so the environment at home was all about giving and, and doing. I remember being a child at a Nixon rally on my dad's shoulders, anti-Nixon rally. Um, and we got home that night because he would say, he would tell the story that, well, babe, we didn't have money for babysitters. And he was pretty much kind of a hippie in those days. So we got home and my mother asked, where were you guys? And he was supposed to have taken me to the library at ASU. And I proceeded to chant what I, the chant oh, I had learned. So you did not conspire <laughs> with your father to keep that secret. So, yeah. So all of those things kind of, you know, they, they make you the person you are. And so growing up, I think, in that environment, um, led me into social work and wanting to help other people, um, specifically children. So I, you know, I graduated from ASU, um, did behavioral health and worked with children in group home settings, did in-home counseling with families, and just really recognized that a lot of those situations those families are in, it's not because there's a, a mental health issue per se, it's because of the environment in which they're trying to survive. Yeah. And so oftentimes, you know, kids for whatever reason, get in trouble. It, and and so really recognizing that it's the systems that we rely on to, to get families the help they need to get kids back on track that needed some adjusting. And so from my perspective, it was like, well, let's get into politics, right? That's just social work at a macro level and see if we might be able to change the policies, um, provide the funding at that macro level so that these kids and families that I'm seeing you know, that are on my caseload, actually have a better opportunity. So that's what led me into politics. So I hate to say this, but it feels like politics right now, if you're in the thick of it, is a pretty thankless job. It's so hyper-partisan. How do you manage that? It, it's gotten ugly. It's gotten really ugly. And I first started in 1995. I was 28 years old, my first time in the legislature. And at that time, the legislators were, were typically older, 50 to 70 years of age, primarily male, 
but they had also been there for many years, so there were established relationships. And then as time went on, the turnover rate got higher and higher to the point where even though we have term limits, even prior to term limits, there was about a 30% turnover rate at the legislature. What do you credit that to? You know, I, there's probably a variety of reasons. I think the low pay, the difficulty folks for folks that have to commute you know, back and forth from Tucson or Navajo County. Um, but along with that change came people that didn't have established relationships. So you saw the ability to work across the aisle really break down and it kind of polarized, and you had two parties that would only kind of, you know, have lunch and engage with one another. And I think that was the beginning of, of this kind of decompensation and civility and the ability to work across the aisle. Um, a lot of good has happened in addition to over these, you know, 25 years in that we've added a lot of diversity to the legislature. Again, when I went, it was primarily older folks, primarily male. Arizona is now within the top three states for female representation. No kidding. My caucus that I lead um, is majority female. We have three males and, you know, the rest are all females. Um, a lot of younger people have entered into politics, which I think is so critical. Because if you, I mean, you're talking about laws that affect everyone. When I went, I was one of four that were under the age of 35, and we were quickly called the brat pack because they had never seen this. There was never this group of young people. But over time, we've now had legislators at the age of 25, which is the minimum age, 26. So we have probably a good 25% of legislators or more under the age of 40. A lot more diversity. Um, my first year, and I entered with Ken Chevron, and he was the first openly gay legislator in Arizona. Um, and three, four years ago, we have progressed to the point where we now have an LGBTQ caucus of several legislators. So we've seen a lot of progress in, in some areas in terms of diversity of age and gender and, and political persuasion. But unfortunately, I think we've also seen the civility and, and the ability to maintain and build long-term relationships fall by the wayside. Yeah. And I think that's had an impact on our ability to really push legislation that, that gets Arizona on the right trajectory, again, long-term, looking beyond one or two years. So you, you hit on something that I just can't figure out as it relates to how life works for someone in your position and that's the pay. So, I get it. We have a legislature that's only in session a limited number of months a year, uh, right? But I think the pay is somewhere in the range of $24,000 a year plus a per diem. And what I constantly am trying to figure out is what people can find a job that allows them to disappear for five months a year for $24,000 a year, but then come back for seven months a year and hopefully make enough money so that they can support a family? That's an excellent question, right? Because you either have to have an employer that is very flexible and will allow you to leave for five months out of the year, but that's that's a tough job to try and find. Or, more realistically, what has happened is you end up with people that are independently wealthy, are retired or have a spouse that can make money and take care of them. So that in and of itself then limits the pool 
of people that can serve, and this is supposed to be a representative legislature, right? Uh, people that you know represent everyone. That is a problem, yeah. and and oftentimes I say, you know what, you get what you pay for. Now the legislature is the only body in Arizona that can only get a pay raise by the voters, and it only takes one or two idiots at the legislature to make headlines. And I get it when voters go, yeah, no. No pay raise for you. Yep. So uh, when I first started in 95, the pay was 15000 About three years later, the voters enacted a pay raise. It went to 24000 but it's been there since 1998. Um, well, and it's so just, it's yeah, and it's, it's hard because it seems like you go through a lot of the same things in your head that I do and I'm sure people watching do, which is it is a not full-time job in the sense that it's not year-round and it is a public service job and we have so many needs from a tax standpoint but by the same token if we don't have the right people in the roles and we don't allow more folks to participate how do we get to a point where everybody feels like we're headed in the right direction that's a great question because you get you get slanted legislation right if if you're the population in that body is not representative of Arizona you're going to get legislation that's going to skew in one way or another and ultimately i believe disenfranchise a certain population a certain group of people and i think that is what i would say we're seeing in the legislature and have been for the past several years um, Arizona, by and large, is not as conservative as the legislature is. I mean, if you do public polling on any given issue, um, it varies much. It's very different than what the legislature does. Public education is a great example. You've now had two initiatives where the voters have taken it upon themselves to gather hundreds of thousands of signatures to put issues on the ballot to get more money for public education. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because the legislature is failing to adequately fund public education. So on the one hand, you have Greater Arizona saying, this is what we want, and we're willing to go as far as to work to get an initiative, but yet a very conservative-leaning legislature that continues to say, no, you have enough money, and continues to fight against any additional funding to public education. I think that is probably the, the best example um, that we have seen play out over the course of at least a decade. Sure. So I'll put a button on the, the, the pay piece of the puzzle, but I am curious, in the absence of voters saying, let's raise that pay to forty-five dollars or $50,000 to a point where someone could survive on that and then have some part-time work outside, are there other solutions? I know some states have a legislature that only meets every couple of years. I think Texas is every other year. Other states have a legislature that's year-round, right? And then here we are in Arizona with something that maybe is a little a bit of a hybrid model. But clearly, if you're like most Arizonans, it's not a job that if, you, if I was passionate about it, I could just say tomorrow, I'm going to go run for legislature because I want to do it and I can afford to make $24,000 a year working five months. And it is an especially difficult um, situation for folks that are commuting from, again, out in the rural areas that represent yeah. the rural area because they have to come and set up an apartment here. And you know the cost of apartments in Phoenix. Oh, we're, we got to I mean, talk about that in a minute, right? It's, yeah. It's, you know, outrageous. So now you have three and four legislators sharing one apartment. So we are actually 
having a more difficult time, especially when you look at trying to get legislators from you know, Navajo Nation. That's a five-hour drive. So it is difficult. So when you look, we have teachers um, that are serving and teaching classes at the same time. Um, we have a variety of different professions there. I mean, you have attorneys, we have a couple doctors, a couple social workers, a cattle rancher, um, so others that are... Retired. Are there any other... What are the solutions that you see? And is it only a pay raise? Or is there any other way that we could make this work better? So I think that the fact of the matter is if you do not provide a, a, a living wage for that position, you are going to continue to count an entire group of folks out from ever being able to run for office. Um, you have to be willing to at least compensate folks to the extent that that can be their job and they can pay their bills. Sure. I mean, $24,000 is it's ludicrous. So I think, yes, you have to be able to at least offer an, an, an amount that people can live on. Um, because some people will find a way to get a job on the side. Others may not. Yeah. But until we do that, we're limiting the pool of folks that are making the laws that you and I have to live by, and that's right. Well, maybe this is a good transition to start diving into some of the issues, right? And, man, I, I have a paper that is a full-page length of different things that we could talk about here, but maybe I defer to you first to ask, what do you look at as the big pressing issue in 2022 that needs to be addressed? Um, and you only get one. I you can't pick one. two. Without a doubt, I would say the most critical issue is all the voter suppression bills we see going through the process. A lot of these are birthed out of this conspiracy or what people are calling the big lie that they believe Trump won the presidency. Here in Arizona, we saw this complete audit um, play out, right, where we spent I think the Senate spent a million dollars and another four million dollars were spent to bring in these cyber ninjas that hand counted all these ballots and it took them months and millions of dollars and the final result was what? They found that Biden won and they found that Biden won by even more votes. Complete waste of time. But the goal of that fraud it, that we call was to sow doubt and mistrust in our election system and it's worked. I get hundreds of emails a day people demanding that the election be decertified and that Trump be put in, people convinced that you know, Maricopa County elections did something nefarious and threw away ballots, despite no evidence to that. It has given those legislators, very far-right conservative legislators now, the justification to introduce bills that do things like eliminate early voting. 80% of Arizonans use vote by mail. They want to eliminate it altogether. I mean, that is going to disenfranchise the majority of voters in Arizona. It especially hits hard folks in rural areas, elderly people. Um, there are also proposals that, you know, those boxes that are outside of elections departments so the you can drop drive boxes. by and drop in your, that those should be eliminated and taken away. Not based on any actual fraud, but again, when you do things like remove boxes, when you remove early voting, what happens? The pool of people that can vote becomes smaller and smaller. And I know that is their goal. 
their goal, they don't want more people voting, they want less people voting. And when you look at the demographics of Arizona, we're changing. We are, we have a growing, what they call new American majority, right? That's young people, it's women, it's people of color. And those are the demographics that we see shifting across the United States. These efforts to suppress the vote, disenfranchise voters, take away voter freedom, are occurring across the country. And, and make no mistake, it is a direct result of this conspiracy theory that people believe they were disenfranchised, their votes didn't count, and Trump should be president. But ultimately, it's a way to keep different communities from having access to voting as readily. So I think that is the most dangerous issue that, that we are addressing right now. Because if they are successful in that, the bodies that are going to be making the laws, whether it's at the legislature, city council, board of supervisors, are again going to be very slanted in one direction and not representative of what general Arizonans want or believe. So in the spirit of what Arizona Talks is all about, I hear you on how we got to where we're at. But the reality is we are where we are at. And you see the same polls that I think all of us see, which shows that a large percentage of Arizonans do question the validity of our voting process, whether that's right or wrong, whether it's fair or not, whether there's evidence of fraud or not. And so from the standpoint of how we proceed, it feels like the big question is whether you're right or wrong, half the population that you theoretically serve, right, representing the full state, has questions. And so how do you overcome that concern with not building on the fact that a lot of folks feel like any attempt to stop added protections is just an attempt to allow future fraud? Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that is probably the most challenging solution that we have to fix. A lot of that, I think, is a result of, of social media, right? The ability for people to get on social media and repeat non-truths, half-truths, to, to attack each other and lawmakers anonymously. Yeah. Um, we, we all do it. We all get in our bubble and then we are consuming information that is tailor-fit for me and, and only what I believe thereby kind of eliminating what the other side thinks. And so it is going to it is going to take a lot of effort on the part of everybody to be willing to kind of open your mind and go, okay, sit back and listen. Right? You may not agree with the other side, but somewhere between your side and the other in the middle, there has to be some common ground. There has to be something that we can work on together. Um, and you have to be willing to listen to the other side. That can be very difficult. If people get dug in in their positions, and oftentimes you see that in politics, you're seeing it across the country, then we're going to remain polarized and, and things are never going to be better. I mean, it is really going to take a concerted effort to get people together. Um, it's interesting because I was meeting with a lobbyist the other day from Virginia, and he's saying, what do we do? He said, what if we create a situation where there is a caucus of both Democrats and Republicans, and we don't talk politics. 
no politics allowed, but more to socialize, to get to know each other. And I said, to be human. To be human. Yeah. Because that's what they used to do 30, yeah. 40 years ago, right? They talk about they'd fight on the Senate floor, but then they'd go to Oaxaca's and have a beer together and everybody was friends. That doesn't happen anymore. Those opportunities to get to know your counterparts socially are minimal. So I think that's what it's going to have to take is people intentionally getting out of their comfort zone and talking to someone that they don't agree with. And maybe you don't talk politics, but you get to know them as a human being. Because then I think you quickly learn, hey, they, they have the best of intentions. They truly believe what they believe, as do I. So how can we begin to acknowledge each other's positions, see each other as human, and where can we find common ground? I, I do want to ask just one more question on the, the, the voting front, because you mentioned, is there a way to, to make everybody happy? And I, I think there are a lot of people out there that want to know, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out ways to strengthen confidence in the vote without limiting people's ability to vote. It seems like that could be the sweet spot. So why aren't more legislators working together to figure out a way to do that? And that's a great question because for a few years we did work together and, and the goal was how do we engage more people, bring more people into voting? And that's where things like drop boxes, early voting where you could you know, go to the elections department two weeks earlier. It was a bipartisan effort to ensure that more people could vote. Now, uh, now, we're, at a different, now we're at a different place, right, because of concerns. Um, I'm not sure how we tackle this because you have, you know, Republican Board of Supervisors saying repeatedly there was no fraud, there was no fraud, and yet people of their own party adamant, yes, there was. So you have that that fight even within parties. Um, there's just a real lack, I think, of, of faith that people have in systems and elected officials. Um, and, and we need to figure out a way to address it. I wish I had the answer. I really do. There, so, you know, that we have some bills that we see as um, common ground. You know, at a certain threshold, there should be um, an automatic recount if races are close. We've kind of increased that, and, and that was bipartisan. There, there are some issues that we can come together on. Unfortunately, what's being introduced, one side sees as voter security, the other side sees as taking away voting freedoms. Yeah. Well, and I know this would need to happen on both sides, but couldn't you and your colleagues say to your colleagues on the other side, we fundamentally disagree with you that there was voter fraud and see no evidence of that and have data to show that that is correct. However, in the spirit of restoring confidence, we're all in on ways to strengthen that confidence by adding some security. It seems like that could be a win for everybody, but then politics gets in the way because I know there are people on your side who would say, but that's caving to the other side and allowing them to take a win. Well, and I've always said the devil's in the details, right? There, there's a bill right now being introduced by a Republican that says, we should use this kind of paper and this kind of paper only because it's got 17 security marks and that way we know um, the, the ballots are legit. 
Well, it didn't take more than about 15 minutes of Googling to find out that this specific type of paper is only created by one business. And then you begin to question, first of all, there's no evidence that we even need to change the paper, but secondly, um, we should never be creating legislation that financially benefits one business or one provider. Sure. So the devil is always in the details. And again, yeah, we can vote for these types of things, but if you're voting for it and it's not based on any factual reason, then aren't you still feeding into that hysteria? I wish I had the answer too, <laughs> because it is, it's a challenge and yet here we are with half the state feeling one way and half the state yeah. feeling the other. And we got an election coming up coming in a up. few months, and I don't care who you are in the state, I don't think anybody's feeling that confident about how people will feel the day after that election. Right. And regardless of the result, whether it leans one way or the other, um, how we move forward. And it, so it does seem like I agree with you that that is an issue that has to be addressed. And, I'm pretty confident it's going to require some concessions on both sides. It, it is, and it's going to take some time, and I agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what happens after this next election. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll put the voter piece of the puzzle off to the side. Now I'm going to give you number two. Mm -hmm. What's that number two issue? Water. Yeah. We're in a drought, right? Arizona's in a 20-year drought with really no, no signs of, of that alleviating anytime soon. Um, that should not be a partisan issue, right? We all need water to survive. And so here we are at the 11th hour, we've had to take cuts, what they call tier one cuts. It basically means the farmers in Pinal County have to let some of their fields go fallow and they're not able to water those crops. What is the solution going to be? I think part of the solution, and the governor has proposed a billion dollars to build a desalination plant, and, and that's fine, that's one idea. But there's other ideas. Uh, you know, I've lived here my whole life. I've never heard of any conservation efforts. I mean, we live in a desert, and yet we've never been told, you know, don't let your water run all day and night, don't wash your car every day. I think we need to look at, at conservation. Um, I think you also need to look at the fact that there are, we need to recycle water. And it's, it's toilet to tap. Power, you know, you can you can make it pretty with a word, but they're doing it in other places. They're doing it here in Arizona. We're going to have to put more efforts into that. But I think the one issue where you get into a partisan issue with water, again, every issue unfortunately can find its way into partisanship, is that in Phoenix, Tucson, Pinal County, we have requirements on water. We have management of water. In the rural areas, it's the Wild West, right? So that's why you read about these companies coming in, drilling deep wells, whether it's Cochise County, Mojave County, um, growing alfalfa, and then shipping the alfalfa to Saudi Arabia. That doesn't benefit anybody in Arizona, but it's perfectly legal. And until we create management areas in the rural areas, we're gonna run dry. They're gonna continue to suck those wells dry and honestly displace families that have lived in those little communities for generations. What happens is then it becomes a partisan issue because ranching and farming in the rural areas say, please don't limit the amount of water I can use. Don't, you know, don't uh, monitor my wells and don't prohibit increased irrigation. So then it, again, it becomes one of those partisan issues, rural being primarily Republican. But that's a situation where we all need to take a sacrifice, Democrat, Republican, um, otherwise we're going to run out of water. So this, 
this is, I think, one of the most critical issues facing Arizona right now that people are people in the know and in the legislature are attempting to fix. On the waterfront, we're all human and we're all selfish and we like to use our water and I don't think anybody loves the idea of recycled water that they drink and, and maybe it, it doesn't go to that level, right? But we, we do live in a desert, you're right, and it is astonishing that we have a metro area in Phoenix and Tucson that are five million and over a million that have built, thanks to the Central Arizona Project and all these other things, these booming societies. Yet, I'm with you. You would think from a partisan standpoint, and, and maybe, actually, that's a question. Is there support on both sides for the fact that water is a crisis and we need to address it? Yes, yes. I think everybody agrees. It's, again, the devil's in the details. How are we going to address it? Because ultimately, you're going to disenfranchise one group or another. You're going to have to tell them, hey, you got to use less water or those decisions will be made for you. And that's where we're at right now with the tier one cuts that hit in January that are now forcing Pinal County farmers to use less water, so. And that's because of the reduction in the Colorado River water, it's, and right? It's the water in the dam. I mean, the, okay. the levels have just been dropping. Yeah. We're, we're in a drought. So why, if there is agreement on both sides, why is it that we are at the 11th hour? And why is it that last year, the year before, the year before that, we've done nothing? That is an interesting question. And I've been in the legislature long enough to see that for whatever reason, there's a lot of foot dragging up to the deadline to get things done, whether it's the budget, whether it's education funding. And I think that that's where we're at right now. I had a meeting yesterday with former Governor Bruce Babbitt because 40 years ago, he was instrumental in signing the um, Groundwater Settlement Act in Arizona that established those management areas in the cities. So he was back yesterday basically saying, we need to do the same thing in the rural areas and you guys need to do it now. I don't know why we haven't been doing it. We've been in a drought for a long time. I think there's this sense that difficult subjects people would rather you know, push off in, I don't know, in hopes that they get better, that it starts raining day and night. Yeah. But the reality is, it is now on our doorstep, and we have to address it. Let's talk briefly about education, because education has a track record of being a pretty darn big issue in this state, right? Uh, whether you go back to Red for Ed, or you just look at the reports that show where we're ranked from a public school standpoint across the country, right? The numbers, unfortunately, haven't moved a lot. And yet, and then you add in COVID and all of the things that have come out of that for education. And, you know, I'll tell you as an outsider, it's, it's such a tough issue to wrap your head around because you under, I can understand the lure of choice in charter schools. And I also understand the need to support public schools and the ability for then parents to choose private schools. All should be options. Sure. And, and yet, it seems like our public school system is just not working the way anyone wants it to. And just like with water, it feels like we try to take steps forward and yet no real movement is being made. So I ask the same question, what gives and how do we fix this? So you're going to get my perspective, having been there um, since 1995. And even in those years, it was what I was calling the starving of the beast, right? Public education being the beast. Because 
we began to cut and not appropriately fund. And so Arizona remains, and, and, and we can argue, but it's either 48th, 49th, or 50th in the nation in terms of the money we get per pupil. So at the same time that you've had less investment in public education, we also had the creation of charter schools. I've always supported charter schools. I think people should have options, but we literally have the most charter schools of any state in the country. We have a proliferation of charter schools. Again, I support that, but what has happened is legislation that is very restrictive on public schools in terms of teachers' certifications, um, how they can spend their money, the percentages that can be used for administration, the list goes on and on and on. None of those apply to charter schools or private schools. So you have uneven um, requirements to begin with. Hmm. Add on top of that uneven funding, then you add on top of that vouchers, right? What they say is the money should follow the child, so here's your $8,000, Johnny. You can go ahead and go to Brophy, whatever school you want. That's fine. But that $8,000 came out of public school. So now you have the same school that still has to teach all children. Private schools can cherry pick. Public schools have to take care of learning disabled, you know, all the kids with IEPs, they, they do not turn away anybody. So when I hear this mantra about parental choice, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I have done all the above. I paid for private school for one of my children. I have one in a charter right now, and I have one in a public school. But 95% of Arizona's parents choose public schools. So let's not forget that. Right? And, and there is just this, and when we talk about a lack of civility, because Republicans don't like putting money into public schools, we just debated an issue two days ago, and there was a Republican legislator who stood up on the floor, the gallery was full of teachers and parents and allies, and we knew this because they all had red for red t-shirts on. She got up and she proceeded to call them educational terrorists. I mean, talk about civil discourse. That is the problem. So needless to say, they all got up and walked out. That is not how we should be treating one another. It's certainly not how an elected official should treat you know, a group of people. So education in Arizona has become extremely polarized. And at the end of the day, again, we have 1.1 million school kids, the majority of which are in public schools. And like it or not, a lot of the flight that's going from public schools is resulting in a resegregation of our public schools. And again, there, people get very sensitive when that issue comes up. But if you just look at the statistics, who's able to leave and afford a private school? And who, who's still stuck in that same neighborhood? So this is a very hot button issue, but it didn't happen overnight. This was very, um, this was years of chipping away and, and unleveling the playing fields for one type of school versus another. So just so I understand that better, I, I hear you on the choice, right? Parents should have a choice whether to send their kids to a charter school, a private school, a public school. So if they have that choice and they choose, let's say, not the public school, they go to the charter school then what is the solution to prevent a lot of the things you just talked about? Is it to remove some of the regulations that public schools have that charters don't? Is it to add those same regulations to the charter schools? 
how do we how do we move? We have always said, make it equal. If those requirements are important enough for public schools, then they should also be for charter schools. It should be equal. Very interesting. I mean, if you if you look at the, the history in Arizona, we created all the charter school laws. And one of my colleagues, a very bright man, Eddie Farnsworth, Republican, he was in the legislature, um, he decided to create charter schools of his own. So he owns Ben Franklin Charter Schools. He retired with many millions of dollars that he made off of charter schools. There are many of us that don't believe that one person should personally benefit from the education of our kids. And so again, that would have never happened under the rules of a public school. So until you level the playing field so that, I like charter schools, but you should not be able to personally enrich yourself because you can buy a charter school and set up a network. So there's a lot of unfairness. Those, you know, $30 million would have gone back into a public school, right? Not into someone's personal bank account. So there's a lot of inequities um, that have led to what we have now in Arizona with, with education. So everything we're talking about here seems to come back again to why we're here, which is the mission of Arizona Talks, which is civil dialogue about civic subjects. So we started talking about how we push forward on specific issues, but how do you push forward to build those relationships with the colleagues that honestly you need on the other side of the aisle if you want to get anything that's a priority to you passed? I have learned that you have to be able to look at the other person as a human being and truly, truly believe that in their heart, they are acting out of pureness, that they truly believe what they're saying, what they're promoting. You have to give them that benefit of the doubt. Assume in best intention. Absolutely. Otherwise, if you dehumanize them, you're never going to get anywhere. So I think that's what it's going to take. And it's going to take that really for each and every one of us. You know, if one neighbor is flying a Biden flag and the other one a Trump flag, try to get to know them outside of politics. Um, and, and that's what it's, that's what, I think that is kind of the crux of it, to be able to see people for their humanness and not their politics and establish a relationship before you get into the politics. You got any tips for the rest of us? Because it's not just in the legislature, right? It's right. around the dinner tables and it's in our workplaces and we all face the same challenges and awkward conversations which can turn super uncomfortable, what do we do? <laughs> it's a tough question. I mean, clearly I always tell everybody, get involved, know what's going on, dig deeper than the headline or whatever sound bite you're hearing. I mean, really educate yourself and force yourself to read something that isn't what you normally read, right? Force yourself to talk to someone that doesn't agree with you and force yourself to try and be open-minded. Um, short of that, I don't know how we're ever going to get out of this. Um, getting engaged and getting involved, though, is, is critical. And, and I'm afraid that so many people are going to be so disgusted with the politics that they're just not, they don't want to play anymore. They don't want to vote anymore. And I think that's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to do is, is leave folks with anything but hope. So, so give me some hope on how we change that. Young people, young people. I've never seen young people in high school and college as motivated and engaged as they are now. 
And you mentioned the number of young people in the legislature, which I, I did not know. There's a lot more youth getting involved. And I think that that is important. That's critical. There are futures. So I think that does give hope. And these oftentimes are kids that you'd be surprised at what they think. Um, and they don't necessarily follow the politics of their parents. I mean, they are their own people. And so I think we need to encourage and, and nourish that. Um, I have a lot of hope and, and faith in, in the younger generations coming up that they'll get us on the right track. And in that same vein, I would guess that most Arizonans don't know a lot about the state legislature. They probably don't know who their state rep or state senator is. So what advice or requests would you have of constituents out there to support the mission, whether they agree with you or they agree with somebody that might sit on the opposite side of the, the chamber from you? Get involved. Call your legislator and ask them for a meeting. I mean, I've never turned any of my constituents down. I think that's a problem. People don't, they're maybe intimidated, but there's an opportunity to get out and meet your legislator. And if your legislator doesn't you know, follow the same values you do, find one that does and see how you might be of guidance to them. But get involved. And that's not just at the legislature, that's city council, that's school board. Um, everyone needs to be aware and awake and, and involved with what's going on. I love it. Senator Rebecca Rios, thank you for thank joining you. us. And to everybody watching, if you believe in this fundamental value of civil dialogue for civic subjects, you can learn more at ArizonaTalks.org.